This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You are listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. So um, we were together not long ago. We were. Are you about to tell stories? I'm not going to tell okay, that okay, story okay. because <laughs> because we've not announced anything about that. Okay. We're going to make a coordinated post. Yeah. But we were recently together and I found out that I get to come back to Chattanooga with the Mosaic Fellowship. I'm so excited. And I'm thinking about coming early. Yes. And hanging out. Yeah, I'd love that. And then maybe staying later. Yes, I would love that. I also, um, one of the things you don't know, because you've been busy today and we haven't talked, um, I am, um, my my guest room as of this evening is um, being occupied by someone who is leaving a dangerous situation in their own home for a few days. They may be here for a few days. They may be here for a month. I don't know. Right. If that room is open, it's all yours. Well, okay. I can stay with Shannon and Claire. Right. Yes. Because I'll have my car. Right. And we can still see each other. But my point is, I was thinking about coming to Chattanooga before and staying after so I could hang out in Chattanooga a little bit. Because I love Chattanooga. Okay. I love Chattanooga, too. I'm glad that you love it. I love that you're, I love that we, I get to see you when you come to town, too. So, if Southwest flew out of Chattanooga, I'd probably move. I know, but you and that. You can start your, you can start your appeal to Southwest Airlines. Okay, I will. I will. I'll get that petition going. I'm sure there's yes, a lot right. of other people in this city that would like Southwest to fly out of here too. But um, for now, we have what feels like every other major carrier except that one. So Right, right. So what else is going on in your world? Anything exciting? Well, my Duke class today was the end of my Duke class. So I did a hybrid, I taught in the hybrid schedule. So I did a week of Monday through Friday and then like eight or 10 Tuesdays following that 
that week. Um, and so like that ended and I feel really good about that ending because my schedule was too much. Yeah. Um, but today, you know, because I have this book coming out. I was going to say like something, something happens in like 14 days. Yeah. 14 days. Well, it's already happening because well, people already have their book. I know. Some people are already getting it. But the official launch of Body yeah. Becoming is yeah. on March 29th. Yeah. And... Do you see it in the background? Aaron put up my I book. I do. I do. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Um, are you going to put one up in, in your cubby? I, I can if you want me to. Yeah, sure. I liked it when you had activist theology up yeah. there. Okay, I'll put it up. Great. Can I just turn it to my um, portion with, that I of wrote? Of course. Of course. <laughs> and they won't yeah. be able to see the cover. <laughs> Speaking of, I read your vignette for the audiobook. You did. And um, I started the day. It was it was the last day that I was recording, and I started the day with you. And so you were very present with me as I, as I finished reading the book. And, um, yeah, I mean, we've come a long way. We have. We have. Well, I will tell you that um, before you hopped on the recording, um, the guest we have joining us today asked how you and I – came to be doing this work together and oh well and, you should definitely hear my side well, that's what i was just about to say i was able to tell only my side of the story and it was glorious uh-huh. it was glorious i was like oh i'm just gonna tell the the real truth not the wrong truth <laughs> the truth is is i is i met anna like 12 times but didn't remember meeting anna until we were in Atlanta right. and that's, that's, that's when I chart. The you know, beginning I, of our actually, relationship. I actually left that part out of the story I told. Oh. I didn't even throw, I didn't even, I didn't even say that. I just talked about how we've been doing the work together and came to know one another. And so, yeah, it was, yeah. it was, it was safe and kind. <laughs> I can affirm that even though yeah. I'm the one that I, I know I said all kind things. So, yeah. But speaking of, we are really thrilled that we have a guest joining us today. Super thrilled. Um, we are continuing the theme of amazing humans that have books in the world that you should read. Dr. Robin is one of them. Our guest today is Angela Yarber, and she also has a book that you should read. Um, we're going to talk a little about a bit about her book, Querying the American Dream. We're going to also talk a little bit about her work at the Tehom Center, which is the nonprofit that uh, she is a part of. Um, Angela, we are thrilled to welcome you to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. And Robin, it was all kind things, so there's no need to worry. Well, I, you know, I, here's the thing. I meet so many people, and if we don't sit down and have a meaningful conversation, I don't remember them. It's all and, fair. And, it's and fair. that, and that was the case with Anna yeah. until, until we had a meaningful connection. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't remember her. It's okay. Well, Angela, I would love for you to uh, fill in the gaps on that very brief introduction that I gave our listeners. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about how you have come into this work, um, why the work is important to you. Just give our listeners an understanding of who you are and what you do in the world. Sure. So I am Angela Yarber, um, technically the Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber, though I hold my ordination these days with an open hand. 
which might be something that we talk about at some point. And I'm an author and artist and the executive director of the Tahome Center, which is a nonprofit teaching about revolutionary women through art, writing, retreats, and academic courses. And I'm the one who kind of heads up and leads all of those things. We have a board and we have people that we work with, but I'm the kind of main person there. Um, in the past, I was a pastor for 14 years and um, left the church um, that I was serving in the Church Universal about eight years ago now. And uh, later this month, just before Dr. Robin's book comes out, I celebrate 18 years of ordained ministry um, and see my new work through that lens with the nonprofit, the Tehome Center, and my work as an author and an artist. So before Queering the American Dream came out, which just was two weeks ago now, March 1st, is when it came out. Before that, I had published seven other books, but they were all um, academic books only. And so this mm -hmm. is my first foray into commercial publishing and my first memoir. And I'm excited and uh, nervous and anxious and thrilled and all of those things kind of rolled into one. And I'm delighted that you have me here talking about it. Um, I guess one other thing to add is I, I am a working artist. That's artist and author are the two main things that I do. And um, I focus on folk feminist iconography, mm -hmm. painted or assembled about 150 so far and have about 125 sold in galleries and homes and universities and churches and all kinds of things all over the world. So I love doing those things and I love where the writing, the art and the activism all come together in this um, scholartivism, which is what Ibrahim Farjaje called it scholarship, art, and activism all come together. Yeah. So I'm thrilled to talk about that with you all. Yeah, I mean, so I'm just thinking back to when I first met you, which was in the East Bay, and we went to lunch or dinner. We shared a meal with Wendy. Yes. Wendy's one of my dearest friends, and she's on the board of the nonprofit. Yeah, and I also love Wendy, and... um. I think you were there doing some sort of installation or workshop in Berkeley or Oakland. I think this was the time I had an art show in San Francisco with her church. Maybe. Um, what, yeah. So I had a big art show of my icons there. And um, any chance I'm in the Bay, I definitely have to see Wendy. I have a, a small group of people that I absolutely have to see. Yeah. And then a, a little bit of a larger group that if there's more time, then I'll try to see them too. But I think we went out for really amazing Salvadoran food. Yes, we did. We did. Yeah. And and that, that was my introduction to you. And, and like me, you have Latinx roots. And mm -hmm. and I, I find myself... Um, and I wonder if this is true for you, um, always in this position of having to choose my people that um, as a mixed race person um, living and swimming in the waters of white supremacy and exploitative capitalism and the carceral state that I'm always forced to choose my people. Um, do I align with white folks or do I align with people of color? And it feels like a very impossible situation. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering in your scholarship, in your art and in your activism, do you ever find yourself wrestling with this question of choosing your people? Absolutely. I, 
I feel like I am called and always want to be um, standing in solidarity and abiding in solidarity with the oppressed, no matter what. Um, and it's really challenging because my own um, familial background was, I wouldn't say hidden from me, but I, I didn't know until I was in my early 20s. Yeah. And so in some ways, I feel like it's not something that I have claim to. Yeah. Um, and even when I talk about things, um, I talk about it a little bit in the book, Queering the American Dream, that the I have the Rodriguez side of my family, the Mexican side of my family, and um, have brought things up about them to my father. Um, and that's his side of the family. And he said, oh, well, you know, we don't see ourselves that way mm. a lot of times. And so it's a really tenuous and precarious place to be, especially as um, I experience the world very much as a white woman. And that yeah. has been my experience, the experience with um, the way that I look, with the way I was raised, um, with the way my family thinks about things. And so it's really tenuous yeah. and a, a tender topic that um, is typically surrounded by um, only two Spanish words, lo siento and um, silencio. Yeah. And my family, silence and I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about how the Tahome Center came to be, um, where that vision arose from, how you um, manifest it into being. Um, what was the impetus for your desire to merge uh, social healing and art and writing and activism into one place? And what kind of what kind of work um, are you doing in the world through the center? How is it? Um, how is it uh, giving back into the the space that you've been called to occupy? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, well, we started, I've been doing this work for well over a decade of painting folk feminist iconography, of doing the writing and the scholarship and the activism. And in my mind, they were all very intricately connected. But sure. I realized that for most people, when they think about someone who's a painter and a writer and doing activism work and has you know toes in the academy, um, that seems like four very disparate things. But for me, they're very interconnected in a... Um, Hindu Sarasvati kind of way. Um, so I started doing this work well over a decade ago. The roots are even older than that on when the ideas started brimming within me. But then we became an official nonprofit um, in 2017 as the Holy Women Icons Project. And that's what it was called for a while. That's another book of mine, Holy Women Icons. And that's what I call the folk feminist iconography that I painted. But over a couple of years of doing that, especially when I started offering more courses and leading more retreats, I realized that we were more than a project, mm -hmm. that we were becoming a center. And even since we've moved from our original location of our intersectionally eco-feminist retreat center on Hawaii Island, that's still more of who we are, center than project. So we shifted our name to the Tehome Center. Part of that was purely practical because mm -hmm. Holy Women Icons Project is long and it's a mouthful and people always reverse some of the words or sometimes make some different parts plural. And so it makes it difficult to find. And I also realized that, especially as I moved away from a theology and toward a philosophy, that that word holy and the word woman um, along with the word project. So almost every, <laughs> that they all needed a really long footnote that went alongside mm -hmm. of them. 
And so instead, we picked a really obscure Hebrew word, <laughs> tehom, um, which means deep or depths. And it's the word used in the Genesis creation narrative. And a bit about why we chose that is that tehom is this word for deeper depths, out of the depths God creates. And it's a feminine word. But what's interesting is that it um, is a cognate for the Ugaritic Tiamat, which is this Babylonian goddess of creation. And in that creation myth, um, she creates because of this um, violent Mhulu is the name of it, this violent wind um, that creates creation from her that's masculine. But in the Hebrew narrative, it's from Ruach, which is this Hebrew word for spirit, which is also feminine. And so to me, it's super queer and super right. feminists that you have this um, these two like feminine beings that create the world. And that's kind of hidden in the Judeo-Christian narrative in ways that um, are otherwise lifted up and lauded to exclude queer people, to um, place dominion over women where men are the ones in power. And yet here is the true story. And so I thought that really captures the essence of some of the work that we do, whether it's representation and painting uh, revolutionary women from history and mythology, uh, whether it is telling those stories in more depth through our writing, whether it's through the retreats that are anchored in that painting and writing or the academic courses. And all of those uh, representation is a huge theme. And also I say that my role um, as a queer cis white woman is to shine an excavating light. And so I'm sh shining this excavating light through the lens of art, writing, retreats and courses. And that's where we are. So I'm I'm curious about representationalism because, I, you know, I'm trained in an area of philosophy that argues that representation is a failed project. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people who, you know, like yourself, um, are invested in representation, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I mean. I read a bunch of continental philosophy, which is flawed inherently in lots of ways. Uh, but I'm really curious about, you know, you know, the proliferation of diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, the proliferation of let's make sure we have black and brown people on our boards. Yeah. Um, how can we do representation well um, especially I'm thinking about people who listen to our podcast who are pastors and work in churches and who are desperately trying to do better, but, you know, they have one black friend and they're tokenizing, right, right. you know, people of color. So how do we do representation well right now? I think that that's so hard. And that's a question that I come up against a lot as an artist, because here I am, like I said, is this um, cis white queer woman um, who has the privilege of higher education. Um, and the, the bulk of who I paint and write about are women of color and or queer women of color on the whole. Right. And so a lot of times I've wondered, is that okay for me to do? And ultimately what I come down to is these are stories that deserve to be shouted from the rooftops by everyone. Yeah. Um, not that... Let me rewind. These are stories that deserve to be canonized um, in our history books, stained in glass, 
that every kid who knows about Martin Luther King Jr. in school should also know about Polly Murray, for example. Not at the expense of MLK, for example. Right. But these are things that we need to know. And so the more people pointing in, in the direction of Polly Murray, the better. I think as long as we're doing our due diligence with regard to research and listening. And so it's my hope that if it's deep listening, thorough research and humility, which all of that um, in Hawaii, when I was doing a lot of this can be summed up in Pono, which is uh, translates loosely as intention, righteous intention. And I know that that's a precarious word to use in activist work, but I, I think that the nuances get lost in translation there. But if you have Pono intent, um, and you're truly honestly listening, and it's not just a matter of representation or tokenism, but it's about um, solidarity and abiding alongside. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know um, a little bit more about how the book came about. Um, we're really excited to celebrate the about two weeks in the world of Queering the American Dream. You've already stated that this is your first memoir um, and that all of your books um, up until this point have been academic centric. Um, what is it that brought you to or, or, or what is it that nudged you into the need for a memoir to be the next offering that you put into the world? Um, and take us on a little bit of a journey about what the, what the, how the story unfolds and, and where you end up uh, once, once folks uh, will start to dig into the book. Sure. I think I might start by responding with the end of your question and then work my way back. Yeah, perfect. Thing. And if I get lost along the way, just remind me <laughs> um, if I get lost on my own words, but it's queering the American dream is one queer family who left it all and the revolutionary women who taught us how. And I say that our story began the day the Supreme Court ruled our marriage legal. That was literally the day that we left on our adventure. And it ended when my younger brother's addiction spiraled into a deadly overdose. And in between our 18 months of full-time travel with a toddler in tow, my wife and I, and a camper named Freya. And we're traversing the American landscape. And it's this huge exercise in contrasts because on the one hand, we have these jaw-dropping landscapes that just words fall short of describing the absolute sheer beauty of this country that I get to call home geographically. But that is juxtaposed alongside the policies and politicians and people whose legislation routinely fails marginalized people. And so to hold those two realities at once and then in, in between to have kind of like the American people, whatever that means, um, as this like oscillating between the extreme beauty and the sheer heartbreak is what we experienced for those 18 months. And, and each stop along the way, each place that we kind of nestled our little camper Freya, um, a different woman from history and mythology, they come to the light in the story. And so in the memoir, it's not just my story, but also their stories. The story in Southern Virginia, when you have this, breathtaking autumnal glory erupting all around you with these scarlets and oranges and goldens. And then you, you're driving down a serpentine mountain road and you twist around a corner and there's a giant Confederate flag 
hanging right in front of you that's intentionally placed, right? And as we're experiencing that, I'm also bringing to light and learning more and more about Polly Murray, who I alluded to earlier, who's this um, black person who at the time used the language of woman to describe herself. But then if we had the language that we have now, it's very likely that Polly Murray might have identified as either transgender or maybe gender non-binary, but there's no way to know for certain. So we have all of that with Polly Murray, who gets denied entrance into law school because of her gender at Harvard, because of her race at UNC Law School, finally goes to law school um, at Berkeley and writes what Thurgood Marshall calls the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. And then later on in life, gets a call to ministry and becomes the first African-American woman ordained to the priesthood. And in between, all of the people with whom she was in committed and loving, intimate relationships were women. And so here is this revolutionary person who says, hope is a song in a weary throat. Give me a song of hope in a world where I can sing it. And I can't help but think about that and think about Polly Murray as I was in the Southern Virginia landscape, right? Mm. Where the MAGA hats were there and diplomatic tongues were drawling the F word and the P word all of the time, everywhere that we went. And so that's just kind of one... um, glimpse into what I mean by saying at each phase along the way, a different revolutionary woman was with us. And I kind of came to writing about this because when I left on this adventure, I didn't know for certain if I would write about it, but I've always just had a soft place in my heart for travel memoirs, um, especially those um, written by women. And part of that, I think, is um, a bit of an escapism that as an academic and as a person in the heart heartstrings of ministry and you know i'm doing all this theory work and heady work and it's nice to have an escape and so i thought wouldn't it be fun to write that and have there been hardly any queer women who have penned um travel memoirs no there have not been Uh, and have there been many that also have a family with them like a, a child no like i can think of a handful of travel memoirs that involve children but they're either written by um like conservative Christians or so I wanted to offer something out there. And then as my brother's addiction spiraled and he ended up dying, I wanted to be able to write something that also um, honored and remembered him. Mm. Yeah. So you've mentioned a few times throughout this conversation, you've alluded to your ordination, you've alluded to um, aspects of what I feel like I could call your faith um, and, and, or what has evolved into a new praxis of, of belief for you. Um, How did your time in the ministry um, and then your time outside intentionally away from it influence uh, the way that you write and the way that you paint um, in, in these current days? That's an interesting way to ask that question. I haven't thought about it in exactly those terms. I will say that it's highly influenced the way that I paint because I do iconography, but I definitely give it a folk feminist twist. And so it looks different and I would hope more accessible than traditional iconography. So that's a big part of it. And then I would say in my writing that 
especially the liturgical seasons and experiencing kind of the church year is something that is so ingrained in my bones now that it's hard to move away from. Um, and I don't know if I, if I necessarily even want to move away from it. There's something about the rhythm of it and the ritual of it that's really powerful. Yeah, so I would say in those ways, it's definitely informed my painting and writing. And are you finding that this might, this, I don't know, I don't know if this question is going to be, it would be very hard for me, which is why I'm paused when I say it. Are you finding that you feel more creative uh, post uh, church life <laughs> than you did in the midst of church life? Um, and, and honestly, I think that's a question that I'm asking myself also because I'm post ministry and I'm, I'm also a, I am also an artist like you. <laughs> so maybe I'm just asking the question. So I, myself, once I go on mute can say, yes, I ac- absolutely feel more creative post, post ministry life. Um, but I'm going to mute myself and then I'm going to let you answer the question. <laughs> uh, the short answer is yes. Um, and then to elaborate a bit, I feel more creative. I feel more liberated and I feel more holy um, or sacred that myself is more holy and worthwhile than it did in the confines of church. Um, I think church can do and be a a lot of wonderful things. And that's why I haven't run away screaming. I still (laughs) do like I, this coming Monday, I'm preaching at a interfaith pride service. So I, I still am there and still, doing some things, but very hesitantly. And I'm um, very particular about what communities that I choose to go into just to protect myself and have my own boundaries. But definitely I feel more free. And I came from a very free church tradition too. And so I had a lot of freedom when I was there, believe it or not. But since I've been outside the garden's walls is how I call it. Since I followed Lilith out of the garden, I have felt much more free. Can, can you talk a little bit about what it means for you to hold your ordination with open hands? Yes, definitely. So I have not had my ordination revoked. Um, I have toyed with the idea of renouncing my ordination, but I haven't. And the reason for that is this. Um even though I no longer ascribe to theism or uh, a theology that's surrounded with God. So theist, you know, theos is the Greek word for God. Um, I no longer abide by that in my own personal spirituality. And so I say that I am a strategic theist. And I say that in the same way that a lot of feminists who are either post-structuralists or constructivists feminists will sometimes say that they're strategic essentialists. Right. Um, so for listeners, that would be essentialist feminists were some of the kind of first ones, first wave feminism who lifted up and said that there's a certain essence, hence the word essentialism to what it means to be woman. Right. And constructivists would say, no, actually gender is a construct. And so there is no essence that makes man or woman. And so I would abide with the constructivists there, but on occasion, um, constructivists would use the language of essentialism. They would be strategic essentialists in order to get political gain for women. And so I say, when it comes to using the language of theology or the language of God, that I use that strategically. And the reason for that is that when a queer young person comes to me and they've been disowned by their family and told that they are destined for hell, 
it is not helpful for me to look at that person in the eye and say, well, you know, God is a socio-historical construct. Like that's, that's not a generative, helpful thing to do. Right. But for me to take that person's hand in mine and pray on their behalf, because that's what they're asking me to do and thank God for creating them in God's own image and to say that God is weeping alongside of them because their parents cannot see the fullness of who they are. That's what I'm going to do. And I will say that I had a number of years where I felt that doing that was hypocritical for me because of my own lack of belief. But the more I've thought about it, I've never embraced the term atheism because that's too strong for me and never embraced the term agnostic because that seems too apathetic. And so I use strategic theism to say, I could be wrong here. This is where I am personally, where I am personally might change eventually, but because I am ordained and because no one has taken that ordination away from me yet, though I do hold it with an open hand, yeah. um, I'm going to continue to do this work because how many other queer women out there do you see doing it? And actually, I know that you two would be like, actually a whole lot because this is the work that we do. But yeah. for your average person walking down the street, that's not who they're going to think of. Not yeah. a woman at all and definitely not a queer woman. And yeah. so I'm going to continue to hold my ordination with an open hand. And until my ordination council calls a, a committee and asks me to revoke it or take it away from me, then I'm not going to. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Do you find that? So I, I have a, I have a very strong sense uh, within myself of the way that the arts and, and that is, um, you know, multifaceted the arts, everything from dance to poetry to fine arts to, you know, any kind of creative outlet um, has the capability to be intentionally subversive and um, move in the world in a way that affirms our seeking liberation for all. Um I'd love to know uh, about your experiences with that kind of subversive art, the, the way that you are seeing art and creativity being used sub to subvert um, heteronormativity and the patriarchy and, and, and all of the, the facets of, of the world that is, that is complicated for us. Um, are there other people in the world that you are excited to watch what they're doing? Um, are there projects that you have coming down the pike that, that we should know about? Um, what, it, what does subversive art look like for you uh, right now and how do you how would you encourage the people that listen to this podcast to get their hands dirty in that in that um, way of liberation Ooh, that's a, a lot of beautiful questions all rolled into one there and just pick whichever ones you want sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that um, an artist that I love to watch that truly embodies the subversive the subversiveness of art is Harmonio Rosales. Um, and I think here, here. in particular of, you know, the Sistine Chapel where both God and Adam are black women. And um, she has received a lot of flack for that, but um, she's a, cla a classical painter, something that I am most certainly not, um, but is so absurdly talented and uses that talent to do such subversive 
and amazing things that for many people, when they see that, they would say, oh, I've never even thought about the fact that God could be a woman, let alone a black woman. And then you have someone like Christina Cleveland, whose book, uh, right. God is a Black Woman, just came out. So someone who's doing the writing side of that and also looking at these Black Madonnas throughout history and saying, this isn't just some newfangled thing that we've just come up with, right? This is something that's embedded in our histories that we've chosen to erase. And in the case of some of those Black Madonnas, chosen to whitewash quite literally and repaint them with lighter skin. So I think of those are ones that I absolutely love to watch and and to follow and, um, you know, would love seeing what they're doing. Um, what I have coming down the pipeline is um, both unknown and in the works. There's a lot related to the book that I'm doing with Queering the American Dream because there's an accompanying art show that goes with the book. And so I have... Um, this is probably my biggest show that I've ever had in my life um, at Lancaster Priory in England. Um, oh, and wow. so wow. being able to have 16 of my folk feminist icons in this like hundred years old priory that is doing wow. such amazing work. And it's funded by the university's um, decoloniality project. Wow. And so to be able to have that and lead a retreat on decolonizing women's spirituality, because that, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast in and of itself, right? Hashtag white women's spirituality. Um, so I have that. And then Atlanta Pride is going to have um, the same art show at Kennesaw State University, which takes me way back because way back where I grew up, that was where the bulk of kids from my high school who went to college went there. Um, and to be able to do that with a dear friend of mine from undergrad, where we went to undergrad together, weren't out. And now he does like the most revolutionary, amazing drag work with Drag Queen Story Hour. You should follow Miss Terracotta Sugar Baker um, out of Atlanta. And so to be collaborating on these things, um, to be leading retreats, I led a pilot retreat um, called Queering the Dream that's rooted in the book. And I have a couple more of those coming down the pipeline. Um, so a lot of things related to the book, but since I've moved from Hawaii Island to St. Petersburg, I'm now, in, and since the book has come out um, and it's in the world, and now I'm kind of going like, what, what's next? What do I do? What am I, <laughs> I mean, of course, um, as you know, um, Robin, you've, you know, published multiple books and you have one coming up and you know, all the marketing and publicity and all of that yeah. stuff. Outside of that, um, I'm finding myself asking, like, I have art projects that I want to work on. I have writing projects that I want to work on. I have funding that I need. Um, where do I find and do all of those things? So I'm in yeah. a little bit of a period of discernment right now amid all the projects related to the book that are coming out. Well, I hope I'm able to see you in real life at Atlanta Pride. I will be down there as well. So hopefully we'll have a chance to, to connect IRL. When am I, am I going to be there in Atlanta Pride? Well, you can be there if you want to be there. Yeah. Is it when we're going to decadence? No, that's New Orleans. Oh, you're talking about Atlanta. Atlanta Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. In Atlanta, will be, it's through Atlanta Pride, but it's not during Pride. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. November the 8th. Oh, okay. Perfect. Um, and then I'll be doing some Pride things with St. Pete Pride, which is one of the largest in yes. the entire country. Oh, so wow. So I'll be doing some stuff there at the very end of June. So I'll be in the UK for most of June for the art show. So and then great. zipping back just enough time to maybe 
have jet lag wear off. Right. And be a part of St. Peter's yeah. Pride here. Oh, yes. So exciting. Cool. So exciting. Well, all of that sounds amazing. I am, uh, Robin has, is a part of, we, uh, I have a traveling art show as well. Um, uh, uh, organization that I, I founded several years ago called Faith Marks, which is based on the spirituality of tattoos. And every piece of photography captures the tattoo of a human and then tells their spiritual story that goes along with the, the ink that they have on their body. And Robin, wow. Robin's Ooh. body is, is in the show and, um, uh, several other folks that you may know. And so anytime I hear someone talk about their art, being able to hang somewhere and, and to really just kind of experience that and to watch the way that others, experience it for the first time. I mean, I, when you were saying it, I was just getting goosebumps for you because I, I, I know how, I know how exciting that is and how, how amazing that is, um, in the world. So I'm, I'm just thrilled for you for that. Hearing that gives me goosebumps. Cause now I'm like, Oh, let me start fl- like yeah. show my tattoos here and tell you about the, you know, the ones that I want to do, but haven't because I've been a little too wimpy about it. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, also, another podcast we could we could probably yeah, do exactly. a whole another episode yeah. <laughs> well i would love for you to let our listeners know how they can find you how they can be in touch with you what the best way to look at your art is and especially how they can buy your new book yes. um, how do we how do we let folks know where you are and how to be in touch thank you um so the short answer would be to go to the nonprofit's website, tehomecenter.org, and that's T-E-H-O-M center.org. And from there, if you click on the books link, then you can buy the book. You can also buy the book. Oh, I don't even want to name the name, but you know, yeah. it starts with A. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it through Parsons Porch, which is the publisher also through Barnes and Noble or wherever books are sold. Um, if you're a person who really wants to buy the book, but a hardcover book is just out of your price range, call your local library and they will most likely order it for you. Yeah. And then you can be first on the list. So just remember that because I know that for some folks buying a hardcover, you know, spending $29 might not be in the cards, but if it is in the cards, I would greatly appreciate it. Um, art's also available at tohomecenter.org on our prints page. I do prints and originals. And with the book and the art, every single sale goes back into the nonprofit. So um, all of it goes to help us tell the stories of revolutionary women through art writing retreats and academic courses. And one other cool thing about the book is that really 100% of the sales go to charity because my publisher, Parsons Porch, is also a nonprofit, and their motto is Books to Bread. And so they're located in Cleveland, Tennessee, and um, all of the profits that they raise over the amount of the cost of publishing a book um, go to Feed Hungry Families. Amazing. And then all of my author royalties go back into the Tahome Center. And so it's Amazing. a really neat project where buying the book isn't just buying the book, but it's like making a $30 donation to those two nonprofits. I know them well. They're like 20 minutes up the road for me. So that's... Which we can all like give up our craft beer for a weekend. We could give up our Starbucks, but we should not be buying coffee at Starbucks anyways, just like we shouldn't be buying books from Amazon. But we can give that up for a weekend, invest in 
social courage and social healing by buying Queering the American Dream. It's a really wonderful book. We need more people telling the stories of revolutionary people. Uh, you know, I just sort of recall Fred Hampton, who who talked about himself being a revolutionary, and I don't want to lose the the stories of revolutionaries. Uh, one being Angela, who is is paving a path for theology, theology, art, and scholarship to be accessible. You know, I don't want to lose these stories. And so please consider giving up your eating out for a weekend and buy the book. It's a wonderful book. I mean, I'm glad I have my copy and um, it's something I think that I will look to as I continue to try to ground my theology in story and in praxis for those who are on the underside. And so I would say, Buy a book, uh, buy one to give away, and um, let's support the awesome work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, Angela, thank you so much for being on the Activist Theology Podcast. We're grateful that you took some time out of your day to, to spend it with us. Um, friends, as a reminder, please do follow us at Activist Theology. Don't, don't forget that Activist and Theology share a T. Um, you can follow us at atporch.com. That'll help you join the app and the community that we are curating um, that is helping all of our folks connect the dots in liberation and social healing. Uh, one last plug, because Dr. Robin won't do it, um, their book is available now. Um, please do pick up a copy of Body Becoming. And if you are local to Nashville, you can attend the book launch for Body Becoming on April the 2nd. You can find out more about that on all of our socials and get your ticket to come and see Dr. Robin in person. Um, our friend Joe Lumen is coming into town and it's going to be a really beautiful book launch. But if you can't come to Nashville. It doesn't There's matter where you are in the world. We are going to be streaming this event live. And so you can buy a ticket to see the book launch live. And um, again, all of those tickets are available online. Visit any of the socials at Activist Theology to grab a ticket to be a part of that event. It's going to be a really beautiful night and we don't want you to miss it. Um, Dr. Robin. And every ticket comes with a book, with a personalized book. So yes. You buy a ticket, you get a book. Um, thankfully, we had a book sponsor who bought all the books. So we have 150 books, and we're hoping that we sell 150 tickets so that we can get books out because Lord knows I don't need any more books in my office because <laughs> it's full of books. Indeed. Well, friends, thanks for being with us um, for another week of the Activist Theology Podcast. We will see you again as you continue to get your hands dirty in the work and figure out what it is that you want to do to contribute to the path for liberation for all of us. And in the words of Desmond Tutu, let's become prisoners of hope. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. 
you have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.